episode 35 with model and activist Bethann Hardison. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with the indefatigable Bethann Harson. Bethann is known to the world as a model, activist, and the grand dame of the fashion and design industry. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, to a good time girl and intellectual imam, Bethann's parents separated when she was just 18 months old. That good time girl cultivated Bethann's early esprit de corps with tap lessons, humor, and drag queens in and out of the home. As a teenager, it was Bethann's father who brought a sense of worldly curiosity and spiritual grounding to her life. Always with a sense of her own personal drive, Bethann got her start in the fashion industry in the showrooms of 7th Avenue and was eventually invited to be a model for Federated Stores, the most sought-after runway show for buyers at the time. Known for her history-making performance at the Battle of Versailles in 1973, she's also known for mentoring and managing some of the industry's most well-known names, such as Tyson Beckford and Veronica Webb. Today, at nearly 80 years old, Beth Ann is still a force to be reckoned with. For decades, Beth Ann has led the fight for diversity of thought and representation on the runways, in pages, and behind closed doors of some of fashion's most influential houses. Today's conversation is one of iconoclastic voice and elder stateswoman reason. Wherever you are in life, you'll find a treasure trove of timeless wisdom in this conversation with the Bethann Hardison. Save it. Bookmark it. Come back to it whenever you need to remind yourself to keep dancing on your journey. It was such a privilege and an honor to sit down with Beth Ann, and I cannot wait to invite you into this conversation across generations. Let us know what resonated with you over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination, and make sure you hit that subscribe button, and let us know your thoughts over on Apple Podcast. Leave us a review. Let us know what's on your mind. Or you can drop us a note via our new digital interactive site, blackimagination.com where you can actually view the podcast via our new visual podcast player. Check it out, have fun, explore, and without further ado, this beautiful, beautiful conversation with my friend, Bethann Hardison. Thank you so much, first of all, and welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I am so thrilled to have you on, and I have a litany of questions. I was just, <laughs> t- like, literally, I was typing them out last night. Like, I just I just kept going. I was like, we will yeah, not get to even a third of these questions. But, 
Yes, yeah. there is a lot to cover, um, but it's just such a pleasure to have you here. And thank you again so much for taking the time um, out of your busy, busy schedule. Yeah, sometimes you take, you know, sometimes you just need a shot of of, um, of inspiration too. You know, sometimes we, we do things, we're doing it and giving energy. And then sometimes you just need energy back. Mm. And doing something like this with you, for me, is getting energy. Because it, it doesn't come in all forms, you know. It's it's a lot of giving, a lot of giving, a lot of giving, and you're giving a lot of a lot of wisdom and uh, and experience, and that's great. And I do because as I speak, I learn a lot about myself. But having to talk with you after that day too in Cooper Hewitt, and you had asked me a long time before to do this, um, you know. And you, I've gotten and I, and I knew you before too because you had introduced yourself to me, and we. I learned a little bit of what you were doing in, produ- in production, and then I learned that you, of course, you were you're, you were a crafty person, you know, with, with uh, as photographer, you know. But the idea of talking that day with you and Jacoby just really—and I was not well, but I promise you, I held on, and it was so inspiring to me. It's just so good for an elder to meet a junior who really is smart, <laughs> you know, who just thirsts for knowledge. And smart is only that, you know. It doesn't mean necessarily, you know, you're going to win prizes for being, you know having good sense, you know, but it really is just a thirst for knowledge. And it's nice to see that because, um, you know, back in the day, we all had to be kind of smart and hip. That was what you did in the 60s and the 70s. And then time goes by and the world around you is not so smart. So you don't have to be so smart. Mm. It's interesting. Mm. interesting. And so now when you come up and you meet this young, fresh meat of people who are really beyond, they know they still want to be smart. It's like, what a, whoa, wow, how nice, you know, (laughs) it's really, so that's what I say. I'm sorry to, you know, go on about it, but that's truth for me. No, 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 thank you. I mean, I, you know, one, one thing I always say at the end of every podcast is stay curious and keep dreaming. And, you know, I'm curious about life. I'm curious about you. It's interesting because, you know, as you speak about, getting to know me over these years, you know, we've spoken on panels at Google and, you know, all of these places, um, running into each other backstage. Um, and I, you know, had an idea of you, um, and even over time, like really getting an even deeper sense of you. And I think something that I, that I also speak about a lot on the podcast is the importance of relationships, the importance of relationships um, and the ways in which, like you spoke to earlier, you know, we can, we can exchange energy. We can pour into uh, each other. And when I think of you, yourself, your legacy um, over all of the careers, I can't even say careers, just you know, curiosities that you followed along, um, um, along your life. Um, it's always been really a service. It's always been one of giving. It's always been one of, of pouring into. And I think that's something that maybe unites us in a way because, because I'm going to say we, cause this is just what I feel yeah. is that we in a way have lived charmed lives. You know, life is real you know, and we, we, we have our sufferings and, 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 and our challenges, but, uh, our perspective on many things is usually, you know, the glass being half full, you know, being able to find the silver lining and, um, 
And just that ability does come with its own weight, does come with its own level of responsibility because you find that you are constantly um, speaking for those who don't have a voice. Right. You know, who perhaps don't have the courage to actually speak up about and the, and the and things not, that they don't see. And not everybody is supposed to. Yeah. Not everyone is supposed to. Everyone's not, you know, I would say that expression, old expression I've been saying for so many years is that everyone's not meant to <clears throat> ride the Trojan horse. There's a lot of people who are supposed to pull the Trojan horse, you know. There are the worker bees and then there's the, the leaders, you know, and some people just have different jobs. And everyone's like people say, well, you know, everyone's not meant to be a revolutionary. Everyone's not meant to be uh, a fancy good photographer. Everyone's not meant. But what they're meant to do, please do it well. Commit to it. (laughs) 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 You're sweeping the floor, sweep the floor. You know, get it done. Yeah. Sorry. Go with the questions. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm nervously awaiting. Oh my gosh. No. I mean, so to be honest, like, I would just love to start, like, who is Beth Ann Hardison? Like, how did you become who you are? Like origins? I know you grew up in Brooklyn, um, but like, what was your upbringing like? Like what set the scene for us? Well, I, I grew up with my grandmother and my mother. Uh, primarily, my mother had left my my mother and my father separated when I was like 18 months old. We lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant. and my father and my mother had lived on Green Avenue. My mother moved out at some point, and I, all I remember is like when she and I were living together on like Monroe Street, um, and I must have been about three or four. I would go visit my my father, uh, and I would really literally be told my mother would send me out the door and say. Now you go down to that corner, you know, wait for someone to cross you. And then you cross the other street. And this is what happened at four years old. And then they would do it. People would do it, you know, back back another day, nobody snatched kids. Nobody wanted to feed anybody else, you know? <laughs> so they actually, you know, would help me to get to my father's house. But by the time I was seven, I was a latchkey kid because my grandmother came to live with us too. And I, we grew up and I, by that time we had moved on a few blocks. We moved always around the, the Bethesda Stuyvesant area, rooming houses per, per se, you know. Um, and so I was a latchkey kid, meaning, you know, you, you took care of yourself after school. You, you had a key, you had it on your neck and a chain and, you know, your parents went to work and you, and they left you responsible for yourself. They left your clothes out. You gave you, put a little account at a grocery store someplace that you could buy your, you know, anything you might need. And she would pay the man at the end of the week. So I grew up like that. I gang fight as a kid from age of nine to 12. Yeah, that was me. Lady Chaplin's Peace Out. Um, yeah, I really like that. Yeah, that was a great moment. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is Lady Chaplin's? Is this, is this well, a gang? Chaplin's was a gang. And we, the, the Chaplin's, they were five borough gang too. They were one of the biggest gangs in all of New York at the time. Um, there were other gangs like the Stompers and the Mighty, the Mighty, the Mighty Stompers and the Mighty, maybe the Mighty Stompers. And there was a few other gangs that were known. But gangs back in the day were not like the gangs are today where, you know, they kill people and shoot people, drive by. No, gangs back in the day was like, if you went in the wrong neighborhood, more than likely you get beat up. And everybody would more than likely go to the wrong neighborhood because your aunt lived in that neighborhood. Yeah. So things like that. I ran track as a kid um, for the PAL and on on um, on, Gates, um, on Gates Avenue uh, Wind Center. Still there, by the way. I went by there one day many years ago to see um, 
uh, Baptiste, and I, I just drove and hadn't been in Brooklyn in so long. I started driving around neighborhoods, just seeing where I had grown up. So I ran track from then. I became a well-known tap dancer at the oh. young age of yeah, 11, 12, 13. I, my hoofer, the te my teacher, uh, was a hoofer named uh, Duke Baldwin, and so I he had me. After I started with him, then he had me add a couple of girls. So we became like a trio. We would dance at night. My mother used to, have to wake me up and for me to go. And we would dance at these, you know, big dances. And that's where he was always performing. And then we would be his other act and come out. And the 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 the, the audience would throw money to it because you know child labor laws. You can't get paid. So at night here, my mother would wake me up around eight o'clock, get me dressed. We'd go to the big event and we'd wait and then I'm sleepy. And then we'd get out of time to go. We'd get out there and we'd tap and tap, tap. And it became so interesting that I became kind of known. And then I started tapping on radio and then tapped it, you know, Star Time Kids. And I, Leslie Ogums was on that show and I used to hate her. Everybody <laughs> did. Everybody did. But she was cute, had long hair. We didn't. Uh, <laughs> all those kind of little things that you grow up in. And you know, by the time I was 12, my father came and got me, took me away from my freedom. Mm. And he was an Islamic uh, imam. And he knew that it was time for him to start to take his responsibility and make sure he taught his daughter or any child. By the time the 13, too much things have to be told. So I went to live with him in Crown Heights when I was, when I was 12 and a half. And I still was part of the gang, by the way. And I love him because he was so cool about so many things. I would tell him about something like that. And he said, okay, so what do y'all do? And I'd tell him what I did, what we did. And then he'd be like, okay. Never said, don't you do that. Don't you. And, you know, of course, the wisdom of him knew it would fade. And it faded. Um, but the boys were always very protective of me. And I never understood why. They didn't, a lot of the girls were kind of loose and out there. But the guys were always very protective of me. And then I went to live, once I went to live with my father, everything changed. He was an intellect. My mother was a good time girl. My father was serioso. So he was teaching me everything from sending, you know, telegrams to uh, world leaders, like John Foster Dulles was the secretary of state at the time. I would send, um, you know, a Western Union wires to, to besiege when the Suez Canal was in trouble with, you know, and. And uh, uh, Nasser was the president then of uh, Egypt. I mean, there's so many things my father taught me about Joseph Kennedy. You know, my father was extraordinarily brilliant. And he had a lot of people who, who came to him for mentorship. Everything from McCord Tyner to Dakota State. And, you know, these were recording artists and, and musicians. Malcolm X, he was someone. Elijah Muhammad contacted my father and had him come to, to Chicago before he came to New York because he knew my father had a great deal of power and, and, um, and, and, and wisdom. And they really wanted to come to New York. And so they asked my dad what he thought. But my father, knowing that he was a religious man of the faith of Islam, and, and, and Elijah Muhammad was talking more cultural stuff with the religion. You know, when you preach hate, and it sounded like hate by saying the white man, the white man, the white, that's, you know, there's so many white men who are part of Islam. You know, they're followers. So you you can't side someone. So Mike was my only father's thought to him. But they came anyway. Malcolm came, and there they were. Eventually, Malcolm became someone who would speak to my dad. And then, uh, you know, my father began to tell him he couldn't go into Mecca because you can't talk hate. And Malcolm was like, you know, and there was a cultural good thing. 
honestly, I felt as I watched as a kid, uh, and we all know we know now too, but eventually um, uh, Malcolm didn't believe it. He tried to get into Mecca, and he never could. And then one day he could. When he started to change his way of thinking too, so it's an interesting life. I went and I went to got out of went to a high school, uh, George Washington. I mean, pardon me, um, Wingate. George Wingate High School, and we were bused into uh, to that school. We were, and I didn't know that's the reason why we, as black kids, some of got into this very white school. But that was the beginning of busing in that area. And I really, I, I had to write. I had already auditioned for performing arts and gotten in in, in, in uh, drama, which was a big thing. And my mother was never someone who told me what to do or how to do. And not like parents today guiding their children. I was just off and running. I was a kid who was doing everything on my own, whether I ran track or went to different people's churches. My mother and then was just home, sitting home on Sundays. But I went off and did these things. And when I went and got myself into the school and then chose not to go because I liked this little white man who came by our school in Bethesda and talked about Wingate, I was intrigued by this brand new school and the architect of it, because it was built and it's a banjo. And I went to that school and it was the greatest experience in my life because I became so successful in the school. It's successful I, how? I became the first black cheerleader. I became, they, they voted me to be uh, the sing. Sing is a thing that every, um, um, what do you call it? Every grade would put on in competition at the, at the end of spring to compete against each other. So we do productions and the whole student body voted for me to be in the junior year, um, the sing leader. And then they voted for me again, cause we won. We beat out all the other three classes and then we won. And so then they voted for me again to be the team. I was just popular. Um, um, then they voted for me to be a senior. And I did that too. And we won that. I was in the choir. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, I learned to play chess cause it was this cute boy to sit in the, in the uh, <laughs> You know, in in the or and he sat in the dining room and he always sat by himself. Gerard Eileen, I always remember. And he played chess, and I just told him I knew how to play chess. And he and he, I was lying. I just wanted to talk to him. And uh, the, the, so many great things happened in my life, you know, as a child. And then at the age of eight, by seventeen, I graduated high school. And then I slowly left my father. Now this is so. This story is so funny to me. I, I love it. There's so many. I, it brings so up other things. questions. Um, but like looking back, you know, spending this time, these formative years with your mother and then, you know, as you become as you come of age, you know, you are pulled into the realm of your father. Like looking back, like who did you learn the most from? Like who do you think was most impactful uh, to who you have become today? My father. Mm. My father, but the goodness of having coming from my mother is humor. She was funny, and the, the memory of her is so strong. You know, same thing with my son. You know, he has he has great timing as well, and it's it's just so good to know that Sophie was in my life. Her freedom and her cool. You know, she was very cool, and um, and I felt I was smarter than her from the time. And you know, she said, you know, the thing about Sophie, she used to go to the houses. My mother used to hang, at some point, my mother was very popular in the neighborhood. My mother started hanging out with drag queens. This is in the 50s now. And uh, they used to come into the house. If you look at the, the, the documentary that I'm in, in uh, on HBO called About Face, you'll hear the story because I'm interviewed on this and I tell the story. 
my mother used to come into the house and I was very much, I was a little bit of a snob as a kid. And I would be looking at television and my mother would walk in with these two or three guys that I, I would see them out of field of vision. And then they would go into the room and that would hear them making all kinds of noise and laughing and stuff um, in my mother's bedroom. And then I would be watching TV and so annoyed with them because I couldn't hear so clearly. And then they would come out and all I can remember out of my field of it, I would never give them the attention to really give them my attention, being a little bit of a spoiled, snobby kid. And I would notice that three women would leave. And I never figured that out till many years later. But they had walked <laughs> on into the house and gotten dressed in my mother's clothes and then they went out to the clubs. And my mother used to go to houses back in the day. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. She was an interesting girl and she was really cool. And she was a card player, hang out, drink, talk shit. You know, she was very interesting. <laughs> she wasn't someone you're going to learn intellectually, but she cared and protected me. Mm-hmm. But she could. And when I started doing a little naughty things like putting toilet tissue in my little T-shirt, acting like I had breasts, she had to sit me down and explain things. But in the end of the day, you know, she was great. But my father, that was the one. That's the one you learned a lot from. And so I find this to be really interesting, this story of your mother in the 1950s hanging with drag queens yeah, yeah. and this kind of contemporary um, hmm, cultural battering that the black community gets for being homophobic. Yeah. You know, like, what do you think changed and shifted in the last, what, 60, but it's 70 years? You, say that. you know, it's it true. There were always queens in, in, in the community. There were always people who couldn't help themselves but defy. They just couldn't help but be them. And you'd always get the battering. You could see it in the neighborhoods, you know, when somebody go by. And the queen would stand up for themselves and throw their shoe at the guys. And the guys would laugh at them. Because, you know, in our neighborhood, there was always pockets of guys on every corner. So a drag queen could really have a, take a, you know, take a hit, you know? But it's interesting also that they could find also some kinship with certain people. My mother loved people and she didn't care who you were. If you brought something to the table, she was down with it. You know, if you brought humor or style or something and that was Sophie and I'm telling you, she, that's what I experienced in it. And I think that was interesting in that way that you did have that, but you also had always those who embraced and she was that. And they both were, just to say it to you, both my father and my mother were jitterbuggers. So they used to go to the, you know, those clubs with high brown babies balls and all that place up in the Bronx and different clubs where you dance. So that, that's how they met and that's what they were for a while, they were dance partners. So that they, you know, she's, she, but my father was, you know, was destined for more and he was more. And my mother just was, you know, remained who she was. Ooh, I'm going to do a, a quick pivot. Like, I love that phrase. My, my father was destined for more. Um, in thinking about relationships, in particular romantic relationships, how do you, how have you navigated that, that balance between, you know, love, right? And, 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 you know, almost, I don't want to necessarily say surrender, but definitely a coupling with your own ambition, with your own star. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, fortunately and unfortunately, or no, fortunately for me, everything found me very young. So I always liked boys since the time I'm seven. 
I always had talked to my mother about, oh, I like this boy and my boyfriend. And she used to laugh at me because at eight, nine, I was always my boyfriend. And she laughed at you know that. But as I went on, I <clears throat> had a child at a young age. And so I've always had, as I learned from going back and having reunions in Bethesda Stuyvesant, the guys would tell me in the early years that I was always the one that they always hoped to, you know, to get with. But I was always someone who made everyone a friend. And so that was interesting uh, to me. And then I think as I, I grow up, I, you know, I've always had love in my life. Uh, it was never a lonely road for me. And, and I married young and I had child young and then I went with someone else that gave me, who was my best friend who gave me a lot of love too. So you, you, you know, you, you lived a life and you go through it being the person you are. But most of my life, I was just trying to keep a job. I was a single mom to trying to keep everything just paid. And my son's dad was always supportive, but he didn't have money per se. But I, I think that, you know, at some point, you become like my dad, you become who you are, more so you don't even know who you're, you're becoming. Mm. You know, you don't know, but you are meant to do more things than simple things. You're meant, you're called to do more effective things for culture, for others, and those things you still do, but you always love to dance and you'll always meet someone when you're dancing. <sighs> And you love to move around. You don't even think you did. My first travel was to Mexico. And then you, you start having places that you live. You know, you live in Mexico. You live in Morocco. You, you live in Brazil. You know, you spend a lot of time. I spent a lot of my 70s in Brazil. So you just always have love affairs, wonderful love affairs. But you're not, you know, and I'm married twice. So you just, the life just provides the road, you know. And I think that you're, what you're meant to do here is going to be done. Mm. And I'm never lonely. Mm. That's been a good thing. And I love to spend a lot of time alone, but because I have people in other ports, so to speak, still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> That's the luck of the Irish or the blacks or whatever. Yeah. Or the black Irish. <laughs> the black Irish. <laughs> um, I love this phrase that you said, you know, you will become who you are to become. Um, you know, I know that you have met many, many amazing people um, in your life and, and just, you know, everyday wonderful people as well. But like what happens when you see someone like what happens to someone who doesn't allow for themselves to become who they are to become? Oh, I think that's always the destiny. I think that, you know, if you don't allow yourself to become who you to become, it's because you're not meant to become. I know we look around and we say, you know, we tell people, you could be doing so much better. You could be really, I think people become more of who they, I never think people change. I only think they become more of who they are. I, I don't, you know, John Paul Gould told me that years ago and I argued that point with him, but as I lived the life, I believe he was, truly was right you know, that you only become more of who you are. And I think that people are destined to do. I don't, I don't think necessarily they can change the journey unless the journey is already in change. So I think that when you say, well, why can't people just do more? Well, if they're meant to do it, they're gonna do it. It may not be today, it'd be tomorrow because they're on their journey. They're getting there. You know, may see it now, but they're getting there. But it doesn't mean that they 
those who don't do it, don't look harsh at them because it seems that they just don't have it. They don't have the belief. They don't have the faith. They're not destined. And I remember people used to say about the Madonna when we were all coming up and Madonna, you know, we all knew her and she just got that record deal that she could just make anything. She was a good marketer, but it was also her destiny because there are many people who send record submissions into labels and they can't get heard. No matter how good it is, they just don't get heard. Hmm. It's not their destiny. Hmm. And so what would, what would you say to someone who is like beating themselves up? over like oh i should have or uh, i wish i had or you know what maybe tomorrow i will try to do better like what are they, you know, what are they uh, when, you, when you were saying that i'm so glad we have this opportunity to be looking at each other <laughs> when you were saying that i was thinking to myself change your neighborhood <laughs> i say that to girls who say i just can't find a guy so change your neighborhood sometimes you need to change your neighborhood move leave the environment Switch it up. I mean, I don't think that you know who you are until you continue. You don't continue if you're still walking in the same spot. And I think that's the same thing that happened with me. I got lucky because I never wanted to travel. Oh, people say, oh, you love to travel. No, I do not. I just so happened to travel. But I started with this whole thing with, you know, we were all like a massive group of young people back in the 70s who lived around the world, like Fulgencia Batista. He was the son of Raul Batista, the dictator of Cuba. Fulgencia became part of our group. And we all used to meet in Brazil and Rio, you know? And the truth of it really is, all these things that were happening to me were just, I don't know how it just, Stephen drove, you know, Stephen Burroughs, he pulled me along into Brazil. And then I became very close to Kaka, which is Carlos uh, de Souza, who works with, Valentino now, but he's, he's been in my life since he's 17 years old. We, you, you just start to move through life and being in you know Mexico and meeting Danka, who was a German model who made me come to Rome. These things just, just kept, how do I? I didn't have a desire. It's just that things would fall in front of my feet and then I would step on the stone. Then another stone would be placed and I'd step on that stone and I would just keep it moving in that way. And I think that's what gives you a lot of who you are. And now living the life that I live and I look back and I, I disagree with a lot of good things that are going on in popular culture or what's going on in the world right now or in our immediate world, you know, with all of the young people in our industry. But it's because I've, because I've had history. That's it. But I, I think that's the truth of it. You just need to change where you are. Sometimes we just have to switch it up. And you know, the ambition, sometimes some people's ambition is more than their own growth. Because it's not so much the ambition, it's more desire. And there's a big difference between desire and ambition. Ambition really means you're putting the work in, you're putting the time in, you're really doing the work. Desire is sitting around wanting, hoping. I wanna be, I don't know why I don't get to be, I don't know, that's desire. But ambition is they're not talking, they're doing. How do you how do you convert from desire to ambition? <laughs> yeah. It's in the hand. Well, this would be an old-timey expression to say to you as an answer. It's in the hands of the Lord. <laughs> 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 well, it's not, you know, that's not really my truth, but sometimes it's journey, it's destiny. You know, because if you can't, if you really, 
if you're meant to be, if you're meant to be, you get, you wind up getting that award or that recognition or your own personal feeling of achievement. If it's meant, you know, you sometimes have to beat yourself to get yourself there. You have to be your own self-disciplinarian and that's really not easy. Be your own boss. That's not easy. We all have to get ourselves up and say, come on, get to the gym or come on, meditate. You know, you're supposed to meditate. No, no, come on, don't eat the hamburger, eat the lettuce. You know, I mean, all these things we have to dictate to ourselves to be better. That means you have to do that. No one can do that for you. That's why people are so successful giving out these things, lessons, and they sell them to you and they get you to subscribe to them. Those are the successful people because so many people can't do it on their own, but they, we all should be able to do it on our own. Hmm. Do that. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned some of the things you said that you don't uh, necessarily agree with in contemporary yeah. culture. Like what? Like what are some of these things? Yeah, like I don't always. I mean, don't hurt me if I give tell it you. to me, Bethann. <laughs> give it to us. I just, I just all this appropriation stuff and not letting creative people be creative. And, you know, I don't agree with. I, I, you know, the fashion industry has gotten. It's, it's a tiny island and now so many inhabitants have moved onto the island and the island is, is just getting so full of so many inhabitants that they can't support it because it's not like, fashion industry is not the auto industry. It's just a fashion, it's a tiny little, tiny industry. But it seems like it's such a need that people dictating what is right and what isn't wrong and getting people fired because they said something 20 years ago and just, or 10 years ago and they were 12 and now they're 22 or whatever, the, you know, it's just so much control. With freedom that we had before is so much more brilliant. And we laid the foundations for everything that everybody's standing on. So for me, it's just sad to see, and it's all out of complete education because, because the younger people today have far thinner skins than we had. Things affect them much faster than we do because they really feel they deserve more, which is fair. We felt the need to fight for more. They feel the feel to make the other guy accountable more. I don't always agree with so much of that. I agree in sitting down, let's have a conversation. Let's educate that other guy instead of like canceling him or putting him out the, the prairie or stopping a young girl from having a job because of something she said, that, that, that bothered me. You know, why take away brilliance because of something they said when they were brilliant still, but ignorant. I mean, these things, or, oh, the other one. Oh, media now being our gatekeepers about how we should blacks, how whites should be taking care of the blacks. That's another thing, I, I, I think, I don't want to be so specific, but you'll get who I'm talking about. When people want to do what they feel the need to sort of like do, I think that we all are trying to figure it out right now. I really do. I think that the whites and the blacks and the Asians and the Latins, we're all are trying to figure it out. We all, we, we know we got a problem. The people who have been holding it tight didn't know they had a problem. They didn't know it was a problem to hold it tight before, but now they know it's a problem. And now everybody's trying, and then you get somebody from the outside that becomes like an agitator, but not a, a proper agitator. And they're white. And they come in and they start saying, well, how many blacks have you hired lately? 
have you done lately? And I'm thinking, who the fuck are you? Pardon the expression. You know, those things bother me. And that's all contemporary. That's all now. I just want you all to get along. I think that the younger black kids are doing better at it than some of the more mature white people. And I think that some of them think that they're doing something, not all, because a lot of them are really making a difference and they're trying. But some people think that they're really giving you a break and they're not really, they're just giving you a title and not even giving you the opportunity to do the job. So those things I see, and I didn't see that before. I grew up in a garment business. Used what did nothing but make me better and had my back, educated me. Never was it a chance that I didn't. I didn't grow up in a corporate world. There was never any chance where we didn't have an opportunity to do all we can. I didn't have an opportunity. I didn't have that, re that resistance or that, that oppression that you couldn't be all you could be. I was told I could be, not just from my parents, but for the people I worked for. And even when I failed at a department, they didn't fire me. They took me out of that department and put me someplace else to learn something else. That was a garment business. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I've seen so much and I know how many ways you can skin a cat. So when I see the cat being skinned that same old tacky way, I get a little annoyed. Cause I don't think there's enough teachers or enough patient people to help educate others. I'm getting really a mess. I'm getting really angry right now. You better switch this question. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready. Go play with a bat. <laughs> well, I want to, I actually want to cycle back to the making of Beth Ann Hardison. Um, so you, you graduate from uh, Wingate High yeah. School and you end up going to both FIT and NYU yeah. art yeah, yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, that's a funny what one. What was the plan? Yeah, that you're, you're so right about that. What was the plan? My <laughs> uncle, my, 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 my uncle, I'm, you know, I'm an only child from one father, one brother, and my uncle had one son and uh, the other, and the other, and it was uh, three brothers and a, and a sister. That was my father's siblings. And my uncle was a successful art director at J. Walter Thompson um, Advertising Agency. But because all the brothers in the Hardison family were basically all, they all were creative. Um, and my uncle just kept telling me I could draw. He said, you can, you do, you're an artist, you have it in you, don't believe me. So he made me apply for NYU art school and I went there for a year. And out of the kindness of my instructor's heart, they would give me a D. They wanted to give me an F, but they see how hard I tried. So I would say to my uncle, I told you I can't draw. I can't, I can't. And I went to the Art Students League also when I would try to draw images and the nudes and all. Yeah, no, no. I, don't, I didn't have that. I learned later now that I've gone, when I live in Mexico in, in San Miguel, I started to try with an art teacher and I've done very well painting. And so she, she's very impressed with this first stuff I've done. So that was one thing. Um, and then, FIT was because I got a little older and then I decided, okay, I'm going to go want to learn merchandising, you know, because I grew up in a garment business and I want to learn about merchandise. So I went there, well, I think a year and a half, but at night, I went there at night. So that was my love experience. I was never a college graduate, you know, 
But like I said to my son, who basically also came up, you know, wanting to, you know, me encouraging him to be an actor because I thought he could. I, uh, he and his best friends were all academic and he was the only one who was in the arts world mentality. And so, you know, neither one of us went to college, so to say. And sometimes people can not go to college and still be successful in some way. And as I said to my granddaughter, who was, I could see that her brain was not clicking properly for academic. I said, you know, maybe you should just try to get the job now because those who are gonna come out in three years are gonna be coming after the job, but they'll be waiting. Because a lot of people don't get jobs because they got, you know, the, the, the quote unquote diploma, of, you know. So I would encourage her to try to do it now. And she's in the gaming world, you know, video games. So that would be my thing to say that everyone doesn't need a college education, but it sure is good to have one. <laughs> well, I think even where we're going culturally, you know, as, as, as a society, you know, I think, you know, we, I think my generation may be the last generation where college actually meant something you know, an actual college education would get you somewhere. Um, I don't think that it is for everyone. I think that, you know, higher education, as many things, you know, mapped itself to the demands or latched itself onto the demands of capital. And it was oversold, like so many other goods are oversold. Um, and it wasn't for everybody, just like, you know, a $1,500, you know, bag isn't for everybody, but, yeah. but you know, people want to make yeah. their money. Um, yeah. But like going back to this, like you being in this garment district, like you were working as a sales clerk and then was discovered like as a model. Is this correct? I, um, when I was working at, um, at Ruth Manchester, which was a junior dress company, um, and that was late, mid sixties. Uh, I was, I worked as an assistant to them, uh, Ruth and her sister, uh, Sylvia. And Sylvia really was my, my mentee, mentor. And, um, and I, she taught me sales, how to sell in the showroom. I was a sales, a sales um, rep in the showroom, which was really something because there was no one that looked like me in the showroom selling. But they were sort of like bohemian chicks, sisters. And they had a very successful uh, um, teenage dress line, uh, you know, junior dresses it was. And even they had a nice editorials and Twiggy was in like a cover on, on Seventeen Magazine and stuff like that of our dresses. So it was uh, being going around the garment district for so many years, but going around during that time, Willie Smith was just coming up and he was working for Digits at the time, which is a company had just got out of school. And he used to see me in the air and, and he really was always struck by my style and who I was. And you didn't see many people that maybe look like me and he, not meaning of color, but just that style. You know, you didn't, we weren't pulling a rack, you know, we weren't, you know, delivering things. And he wondered who I was and he didn't know. And he asked one of the girls who worked at, um, who was one of the runners at Federated Stores because they used to have people go into the industry and give the orders and pick up the orders from the different companies. And so he asked the right girl and she said, I know who that is. I think I know. She works at a, he, she said, he said, she's a designer, right? And he said, no, I don't think she, she works in, at Ruth Manchester. So he wrote a note and sent it to her, gave it to her. And she, when she came that day to our office to drop off requests for orders and stuff like that, she gave me the note. And then he asked me to meet him downstairs at the 1407 um, 
club. So that's how I met Willie. And that was the way he asked me to, to be his like muse, like model with him. And he had appointments at that time and he would wondered if I would be willing to, you know, maybe go to not to interfere with my work, which I was a nine to fiver, but go to certain appearances that he had. So I went upstairs and told my, my two bosses and they were so elated. But that's also how I first started to do the runway was with Bernie Ozer at Federated Stores. And I would take the, the garments over to him and he was always doing big shows. And his shows were always like Broadway because Bernie loved Broadway and he would make it more interesting for his buyers. And he oversaw the junior dresses and sportswear division of Federated. And when I took, I saw, you know, me being a former child tap dancer and being on stage and doing all that stuff. I said, he's putting on a show. I'd love to be in a show. So when I gave him the dresses, I said, you know, if you really want to have a great show, you put me in it. And he said, what? And I thought, oh God, Bethany, you really stepped over. And he said, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm from uh, Ruth Manchester. He said, what's your name? I said, Beth Ann. He said, thank you. But he never responded to what I said to him. So I said, oh God, when I, oh God, I must have really put my foot in it, right? But by the time I got to the office, he had already called my office and told, you know, Ruth and um, Sylvia that he wanted me in his fashion show. And once again, they were elated. Oh my God, you know? I mean, this is the kind of stuff I grew up with. I didn't have that, you know, oppression, you know, you can't do this, you can't, you can't rise up, you know? Oh, you can't go. Oh, this is great. Bernie wants you in the show. That is your boss. But Willie Smith wants you to be his, you know, like a muse model for him. Oh, let's go. Because they, everybody was reading about Willie at the time because he was coming up so strong. And for those listening who do not know who Willie Smith is, Willie Smith is a famous black designer um, who had a fashion line, Willie Wear, that was extremely successful um, doing about what would be the 2021 equivalent of about $57 million a year uh, business uh, in the late 70s and the 80s. Um, And he also has an exhibition that is up currently. I don't know when you'll be listening to this, um, but it's currently up at the Cooper Hewitt uh, Smithsonian Design Museum in New York. So that is a little brief history of Willie Smith. Um, but so, so now you have entered into this world of like modeling, uh, let's kind of quickly speed up to like Versailles 73, the battle of Versailles, which yeah. is crazy because we're like two years away from it being the 50 year anniversary of Versailles mm-hmm. 73. So, I mean, it just from, from your, from your lens now, your gaze you know, 50 years past, what is it like to even think of this moment? Like, did you realize that you were making history? Like, like, are you surprised at how it's become such a cultural phenomenon and benchmark of, you know, diversity and fashion? Like, how no, are you seeing it? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, that was something that was very interesting because by the time I was doing Versailles, Willie had gotten me really introduced to Stephen Burroughs and, uh, Stephen never took me on as one of his models. He was, they, they were, Stephen Burroughs and Old Boutique was really hot. They were so cool. They was like, they had a, a space that was right around the corner from Maxis, Kansas City. And when they moved, they moved as like a tribe. I mean, it, it, it was like, like one or two of them. It was like eight, nine of them. They all dressed in fringes and leather. And I mean, they made all their clothes 
in the, <laughs> it was genius. And you know, you'd want to be with them because they're so cool. But he never looked at me as a as one of Bobby did Breslau, who's one of his uh, you know, tribesmen. But eventually I did wind up working for him uh, as a showroom girl and eventually became also his went on in the company and became his um, his his assistant. And then I began the design, I oversaw the design uh, studio. Um, and with that, he be, was very successful in five years. I mean, I'm farming, and they, he was one of the five that was selected to, to, um, to be one of the designers at Versailles. And so um, he, of course, needed me to go with him. First, I'm his assistant. Second of all, he was putting a dress on me, and I was also a model at the time, too. Um, and they and the company allowed me to model, go off to Europe when I did. I was very close to Issey Mayak and I used to produce his shows like you produce shows. Um, and I basically wind up, we all wind up getting to Versailles with all the trauma that it caused and all the, the, the specifications it was like you, every model had to have three designers that selected them in order to go. So I got lucky and I finally got Oscar to say yes because Stephen said yes and a client said yes. And then it was a long time, but I was sweating it. And Stephen was determined and hostile would say, don't worry if I have to be the one to select her, she's coming. And eventually we got there. But did we ever think it was gonna, we knew it was special at the time and it was genius at the time. And we wind up winning too, which we were being put down in the press that we, there's no way we should be going to France doing such a, a thing. And even the, the American press went up against us. They started losing faith. They were excited in the beginning and then they started getting scared, I guess. But we were on our way and we were going and the French were rude and mad and all that stuff. But in the end of the day, we wind up winning. I was one of the stars of the show and I wind up, you know, making them throw all the programs up in the end stamp. But as we finished all of that, it was just a great memory. It has stayed just a memory for what, 30 years? And then the diversity division of the Metropolitan Museum learned about it. And that was what, four years ago, five years ago? And they just heard about it and wanted to do a big luncheon and got us like a key to the city or something, a citation, citation for us girls. And they selected us at the ones that were black. And we wasn't an all black show, believe me, it wasn't. But there was key black girls in it that changed the visual for France, you know? Uh, it, for Mr. For Mr. Uh, Givenchy, he made his whole cut being black, I mean, you know, uh, Son Ron was always on a little bit of that tip anyway, but it would change a lot of things, you know? So surely once it came out and they, the, the museum noticed it and did that, it became great. So that was funny because for us, we were like, okay. And I got up and accepted the, the it was a beautiful, uh, the, the Temple d'Endur and the Metropolitan Museum and the big luncheon. And Oscar was still alive, and Donna represented Anne Klein, and Stephen was there still. So it was really wonderful. And because of that lunch, and because of that acknowledgement, it went straight to the press, of course. And then the woman who had never done a documentary thought, I want to do a documentary about that. So that became Versailles 73. Um, Robin Gibbon decided that it was going to be her first book. She wanted to write a book based on the energy and the inspiration of that. She did that. Uh, Made to Measure did a documentary on it as well. And then HBO bought the rights of, of Robin Gibbon's book and was gonna have Ava du, and did sign Ava DuVernay on to write and to direct the Versailles for HBO. So all this notice, now everybody knows about, not everybody, but the majority of the world knows about Versailles. 
And so it's interesting to us in that way, but we never thought it was going to be like now memorable. But of course it should be because that's what storytelling and digging up history and documenting things is, is to make people know. Yeah, I, I mean, even even the story of um, Hubert de Givenchy's cabine, all black cabine, uh, is a story that um, I know a couple of people are wanting to tell. And for listeners who may not know what that is, a cabine, um, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even 80s, designers would have like a collection of models that were their muses that they held to just kind of inspire them to to model to, you know, they were just their girls. Um, and so that's what a cabine is. But like back in 73, like there were 11 models of color in this show, which was quite revolutionary. Uh, like, like what allowed for that at that time? Well, that's because we were already that in, in New York, in New York, we were already that in America. You know, that was not, that was an, that was an unusual. That's why it's so difficult for me to sort of sit back and let the ignorance of Europeans come into our country, the wall of Eastern Europe go down, scouts start going to Eastern Europe, bringing in the you know, Eastern European girls, eradicating anything glamorous, eradicating anything black, <laughs> eradicating anything that doesn't look like what they think is now the new thing to do. You know, I mean, like I said, you know, if, a, if we had never done this before, maybe I could let them get away with this. But we had been, you know, the runway model was queen. You know, she was queen. Brit girls had to learn how to do runway in order to get on the runway. Who created that was Calvin Klein. We runway and fashion models service all designers. The print girl just did print, editorial, catalog, advertising. No designer used the print girl. That was Calvin Klein. He created that idea. And I was the last model that he used that was a runway model as he infiltrated and put the, and the, 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 the girls who were print girls had to learn to walk. But the runway model was, he was everything. So here we are, you know, basically watching our, my industry change and be eradicate, just eliminate the girl of color. And then she's no longer even a model to be considered. That's the reason why I had to help the industry remember their responsibility and also recognize the fact that we've been there, done that. This is not like brand new for us. <laughs> you, don't, you don't notice a, a girl of color when she puts on those clothes, it looks like it belongs on her. You put on a girl that's not a girl of color, it looks like a model. <laughs> this is the truth, you know. I made Jay, I'll never forget, sit next to me on a show and said, watch. So this is the thing that was very interesting for us. And I think that it was important. When Mr. Givenchy took on his, he was so inspired, he could see it. You know, he wasn't the first either. You know, there was Papa Roban who used to use black girls and his family begged him not to because there were editors who went up against him. Paco Rabanne was really one of the first. That was before Versailles. But Mr. Givenchy was very taken with the girl of Khan. He loved every girl he, just, he brought in as a muse, but he got a lot of flack. The press went against him. People begged him not to do it. I mean, a lot, he wouldn't change it. That's, you know, I'll always love Herbert because he did that. Because not so much because of the girl of color, because of his vision more important than anything is to have something that you believe you stand for, that you can stand and say, 
you're not following the yellow brick road, you're doing. And so I think that was so, so important to see what all came out of that. And that's why it was important to girl of color in that way, because she can do it all. Now you see it in the magazines. Now what I was telling them about they're doing, I was just saying to Keegan today, look at this. You're looking through, you flip through a bow and every, every major, every major advertiser is using someone of color. Because, you know, for years they thought they would never put us in winter shows because they kept us more for the season of spring and summer, tropical. Mm, interesting. And like, and the, it, true. And we would never get booked for, for like winter shows, barely, barely, because it was almost more Nordic in their mind. The white, you know, wear winter. Like we walked around with, I don't know what, 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 what we, didn't wear, we didn't go out? What, did we, what do you think? <laughs> Let's pray. So the idea of it really, if these are things that really were true, we wouldn't get winter, winter, you be prepared. You're not going to get booked for that. Spring, summer, yeah, here we go. Yeah. So this is a lot of things you learn as we go. And these are things that are really important to know. That's why you have to sort of be old enough and wise enough and be loud enough to be able to speak up and tell people, no, no, come on, stop it. Mm. Now, what happened between 73 and 84 when you decided to open your own agency? Like, what happened culturally that made you decide, like, I need to have my own agency? Oh, oh no, let me let me help you, daughter. I never wanted to do it. Everything <laughs> I do, I get pushed to do. I'm telling you, there's nothing I do that I go, oh, God, I'm going to do this. I'm not ambitious. You know, people think I am because I get so many things done. I'm not. Steve, it was... There was three girls, models, that made me wanted to do it. Made, 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 you know, because I had, I was coming from a model agency and I was gonna work with another model agency from Paris to help her establish herself in New York. And she screwed me. And then I was out of a, both houses, I had nothing. And that's when the girls came to me and said, you're doing this, we're doing this. And I didn't want to, it was Steven, myself, and Lisa Robinson who convinced me that I could do it. And I promise you, I, I, I had to do it because I defied this person who allowed me to leave a company where I was supported, believing that I would be a partner with her. And then she switched up being the French girl she was and said, I never said you were going to be a partner. And that wasn't true. So why would I leave where I was to go with someone to be less? Yeah. So that's why I, um, it became the, the factor doing the model agency, all the things between, I don't know, I worked with Steven, I worked, I, I did produce, I produced shows for Issey Miyake, I was very close to him, I was very close to, as I, once I got a model agency and start to do these things in 84, because um, up until then I was working with Steven off and on until he went back to Bendel's um, and, and working for other, people would call me and ask me to come in freelance for them and I did that. But then I, by 80, uh, 84, that's when I had to do it. I had left Click because I was at Click at 80, 81 to 80, that's right, to 84. And then that's when I, okay. And it was scary. I mean, really scary. But um, I was, the, I was, it was no one like me. And I had a white model agency. I had to compete with my white counterpart. So I couldn't have, but I knew to have Blacks, Latins, and Asians because that's what I liked. And I knew there were too many good black kids and too many good Asian kids and too many good Latin kids. And I started my agency with, with nine people. 
Nick came in being the only boy and he was out of London and he's half Burmese and half English. So did you know that? Do you know who Nick Kamen is? Nah, I see. Yeah, so he, he, was, he was quite special. He was part of um, the Buffalo. You ever hear about the Buffalo clan in, in London? It was like Nina Cherry, all of them. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was an interesting time in, in, uh, in, in back in the 80s. So I started it like that, but it was really basically out of, I had to, and how I saw it, I had Tani Welch was the daughter of Raquel Welch, and all I had was her. But I knew the other girls were waiting for me to get set up, and I found the space. And 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 Nick decided to go with me was a big thing for me. I mean, you know, because he was popular in London. He was known. He had a song. I mean, he hadn't he hadn't started singing yet, but he was known. He was like, and he was so beautiful. So I had them, and you know, and the girls were waiting. And Tani was tough like her mother, and I she was an actor. So I took her to Italy, and she started working on a film there. And then after she came. Then we did a film with Ron Howard, and then, then we had Ariane. Then we did a film with you know with uh, Mickey Mickey Rock and uh, the, the the director whose name I should never forget because he was so important to me. Um, um, so she she did a, I did each one of them did films you know and it was funny to have that kind of company that I was so driven to do more than be a model agency. So that's how it all came about. It's a lot of stuff, it, you no, know? but it's interesting. You keep saying I'm not ambitious, but I know. But, but what, but what you do, no. what you do, Bethann, is you keep saying yes to life. Oh, you know, point. you because you know life is a stream, right? Like it is a continual flowing stream. It is constantly coming at you, and so even if you just stay where you are and just allow for life to happen on the flip side it looks like you're being ambitious because you're just going with you know the stream um but in the moment it maybe feels like you're not driving this kind of thing but you're really more allowing for life yeah yeah you're right about that it's not like i'm sitting there creating it for it to happen but it happens because of that's why i think a lot of things is so based on destiny and you're chosen. You don't even, you're chosen at birth, maybe. You're chosen. Because everyone's not, you know, I don't, I was, I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to my white counterparts growing up in industry and telling them when something seemed racist. You know, I, I can get away with that because of who I am and who they know I am. Um, you know, everyone can't do that. And I'm not here to, to tell you that you're a bad guy and you're terrible. No, you're not going to win anyone's attention with that. You have to indicate, educate. And that's the difference where I come from because I'm not here to hold anyone accountable. I'm here to sort of like point out a little, I think your slip is, I think your slip is showing. You know, point it out and get it said and let them find themselves to be accountable. I miss that phrase. I miss that phrase. Your slip is showing because you know people don't wear slips anymore. But it's so good. <laughs> but people don't wear slips, so you can't use it anymore. But yeah, like, use it more. you know, but it's so good. It's like, baby, you're just, I'm just slip is showing. You know, just tap them on the back of the shoulder. Um, but I, I love this idea of uh, of birth and 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 destiny. Like, I want to pivot to speak about motherhood, and you know, speaking of destiny. Yes, you you know you had a, a child, you know, young, but you happen to have a child. <laughs> like, I mean, 
Kadim, who is uh, an actor that definitely was a vision in my own childhood, right? Like being on a different world. And this is actually also a full circle moment because as you are the mother of TV's Dwayne Wayne, I am actually the father of Wayne Dwayne, who was the name of my Cabbage Patch doll. (laughs) Brilliant. So we are really... (laughs) The kinship. Babe. Entangled, entangled. It's destiny. Um, but but what did what has motherhood allowed for in your life? Hmm. Well, I was really pretty strict because I was scared I was going to fail. When he came to live with me, we started out together until he was three. Then my mother insisted that you know, God, she let me. I would let her. I would leave him with her. And then she started convincing me that I should leave him with her. That went on for like six years. Then I finally, he was able and really wanted to finally come live with me again at nine. And I was just, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that we didn't fail. That was the deal. I'll do, I'll make sure I pay the rent, but you have to do your part because I cannot fail this. I want my father to think, you know, you had him and see what happened in your life and ruin and all that, you know. So we, we, we went into this as a partnership. He was nine and I was older. And so sometimes he just wouldn't, you know, be able to toe the line. But also Studio 54 was happening, all the clubs before that, the dance clubs. And I was, I was young and I was going out, you know, so there was a lot of that. But in, and when you think about what it has allowed me, it's not, it's much more to see what I, how I handled him and how he still responded well to it. You know, I was, he was really, he's really a very easy child to raise. That's a very lucky guy. And I was the one who told him he should be an actor. And he asked me, what that was that? And that was, he was eight. And I am saying, you know, I, cause he was the only kid on the block who didn't seem to know what he wanted to do. And all the kids dreamed big things that they probably would never come to do. And so one day he used to look at Starcy and Hutch all the time. And I said, you know what? And I told him, I gave him um, an idea or something to act out told me he was a little boy who lost his dog because he asked me, what is an actor? How do you be an actor? And I said, well, did you act this out? And I told him about a little boy losing his dog. He's in the neighborhood and you can't find him. And this kid, I'll never forget, sitting in my mother's living room, this kid sat there and he, he honed the character in. And he sat there and he became that little boy. He took his time. I watched this, this is mind blowing to me. He took his time and he started to look for the child, the little boy, a little the dog. And when he did it, he did it with intention. And that's what a great actor needs to know how to do. Not play the act, but play the intention. And he did that so naturally and looked for this dog. And then the way he searched the apartment, when he came back and sat down, whoa, he was like in woeful mode, so upset. I said, okay, Kadeem, when anybody asks you from now on, what do you want to do? Say, I want to be an actor. And that's how it started. And when he came to live with me at nine, I started putting him in this different schools. He wound up going to this other acting, commercial acting schools. And he, found, and he, he was the only kid out of the whole entire school that got a, an agent. And that was the beginning. And how did that make you feel as a mother? I was just glad he was busy. You know, I never was, 
he was you could tell proud. I said, I'm proud when it's all over, when he's dead or I'm dead. And, and, you know, because anything can start happening. You can start using drugs at, you know, 60. What do I know? You know, I mean, to me, I was just so happy that he was busy and I was, you know, keeping a flow. And uh, I sent him to art. I sent him also to Art Students League because I had gone to learn to draw. And he, did, he, he never had a Saturday free. He was so done with me. You know, I was just trying to make sure that we won. Uh, and so it was really, and when he finally became successful, you know, and go on talk shows, it's how he would talk about me. I learned a lot about our relationship because I became a, a, a point of interest for like Arsenio Hall and, and Jay Leno and Johnny Carson as well. They would ask him, so what's your mother doing lately? Because he always had great stories to tell about me and that with things I was doing at the time because I was moving along too. And so it was, it was very interesting for me to learn how he saw me and the stories he would tell that I did to and for him, you know, and I was pretty crazy, good, good crazy, but I was so scared to fail, you know, as a parent. And it was just he and I, and we moved in this building together and here I still live. Mm. You said something so beautiful and so poignant that I just have to circle back when you spoke about um, his first endeavor acting and you said, you know, don't play the part, play the intention. Yeah, and, don't play the part. And I feel like that is such a great uh, heuristic or rubric for living. You know, um, you know, you speak about the myriad of spaces that you find yourself in, most recently as an actress, again, on, you know, a television show, and your own insecurities, you know, even after all the things that you've accomplished, you know, being on set, you know, myself, so many people suffer from, you know, imposter syndrome. And one thing that even I've discovered is, you know, even when you don't think you have it or you're who these people think you are, just play the intention. Like just get close to your intention the part will play itself, right? But if yeah. you just align yourself, what is my intention in That's this right. space? Wonderful that you can apply it. You see it as life too. That's right. Yeah, that's the thing. I had an acting coach, uh, Earl Hyman. He used to be, he played, uh, he was um, Bill Cosby in the Cosby shows. He played his father. Mm. Before he did that, he was an acting coach at Herbert Burdoff's uh, studio, HB studio downtown. And I stayed with Earl, Earl for three years. I remember Earl used to say to me, you know, that was so important to learn to play, stop playing the dialogue, learn to play the intention. And that was the most important thing I learned from that too. And you do do that. And I, I, I appreciate so many things, you know, like I, he put me out of the class because I love going to, you know, I was at every Saturday. That's all. I, I went to that every Saturday. I longed to act with him long to play opposite my acting partners and all. And, and he one day just told me that was enough. And I didn't know what he meant. He took me outside the room. He said, you can't come back here anymore. He put me out of the class. It was almost like being fired from being a student of learning craft. And he said, because I was wasting my time and I could be such a really incredible actor. Diana Sands was an actor that was young. She played in a, a, a film called The Pawnbroker. And it was really, she was one of, to me, she was my inspiration as an actor, but she died young. 
black woman. And, um, and he told me that I, I was wasting time by not getting involved with the craft and taking care of it. And I said, no, I'm, I, I, he said, Beth Ann, stop it. And I said, no, I, I'm just afraid I, I would fail. And he said, you're not afraid of failing, you're afraid of success. There's just no way you would fail. And I didn't understand it and I went home and cried. He didn't let me come back to class anymore because he felt that I was so good and I was just using the classroom and not taking advantage of the tool I had. So I always know I'm an actor, but I'm not practiced because I do all these other things that seems to call me, right? So when I got called to do this role, you know, fear gripped me knowing that I could act, but I didn't have the, the, the practice as an actor. So that meant dialogue. How are you going to learn dialogue? You don't have to, the muscle's not working that way, you know? Yeah. So that was the thing that's interesting. I learned that from him and that, you know, having the fear, fear can hold you back from a lot of things. And that's what happens to a lot of people. You say, how do you get yourself beyond that thing where you, you, you're beyond desire and get into ambition. Sometimes this fear, you know, beyond even that, you know, can just keep people from doing things. And if we can get beyond the fear, and it's a lot, because nowadays, back in the days when there's the 60s and the 70s, even the 80s, it was a very financially successful time for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But the 70s, you know, you could go out there and live life for no money. You know, you don't have to have a lot to worry about to lose. And we, we did so much getting around the world. I mean, nobody, everybody didn't have things, you know. And so it was very nice to be able to have that freedom. But you don't have that so much anymore. Everything seems to cost. We're so exposed to who has. We're exposed to what people have. And it affects people because they begin to think, I should have that too. There's too much to see, too many other people's lifestyles to look at to compare yourself to. We didn't have any of that. We didn't know any famous people. And if you were famous, you, you came out of our crew. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like you were famous and we hooked up with you. I mean, even Andy wasn't like famous. That was Andy Warhol. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> Beth Ann, you are too cool. You are too cool. You're just too cool. I'm looking at you now. You're like you're si you're sitting back and you're cool. You're back with the chap. Was the chaplains? The chaplains. Yeah. Was that the name of your gang? The gang. Yeah. The gang? Um, yeah. Yeah. You're back shout with out. the chaplains. You're you're, yeah, yeah. you're too cool for school. Well, shout out the chaplains. No, that was I did that at a, when you went. You did it too. You went to Schoenberg, right, to be interviewed one time. Mm -hmm. But before that, I was interviewed on stage with Harriet. And when I went out, I, I did. I started talking about the game, and I gave a shout out. And the sport, this guy wrote about it. They said, Beth Ann Hardison, who, did, who would have known? Not only was she a gang member, <laughs> but she shouted out her gang. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> But they were powerful. Ma'am, I, I, I know you're a gangster. I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fooled. But it's also really interesting. We both went to HB Studios in the village, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, on Bank Ready? Street, Which right? Bank Street, Bank Street. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I Herb took Herb a Herb. commercial class there. Um, Karen Ludwig. Dang. Wow, it's so crazy. You remember these you know, teachers? Do you remember the names? And you know, it's funny because your coaches and your teachers that you do hold on to, some faces I remember in elementary school, but like my track coach or Earl Hyman, 
you know, people who really influenced your life by certain things they taught you or made you learn mm -hmm. or punished you in some kind of way. Yeah, you remember them. Yeah, that was a great place, HB. Yeah, it was. I, I think it closed or moved or something. Something Might something have. changed. I'm not sure. But I also want to talk like kind of circle back to this acting and kind of bring us up to speed with Beth Ann because we've spoken so much about like history but like yeah. you're still active like you're still in it like not yeah. only have you just like made your debut on the CB in Black Lightning um, you just did an amazing collaboration VR experience uh, with the artist uh, Jacoby Satterwhite and so you're continually really just shedding not even shedding but just revealing sides of yourself to us which i'm so grateful for like what what's a story that's inside of you that you haven't shared like what's a story that's inside of you that you would love to to actualize well that's an interesting thing i i guess um i mean i i want to i want to hope i hope that the documentary that we're working on invisible beauty actually we that we're successful with it you know that you know you can do it that you hope that you're successful that you know that when people see it they come away with knowledge and they come away with wow they feel like they they picked into a room and learned something or saw something that was revealing for audiences that are not fashion mm -hmm. you know audiences that don't pay attention to that but they that they want to know about this person because the, the film is about me but that that they learn about something more beyond me but a journey of a human Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. More because more it's more to, to let people know there are journeys out there that people are telling they're doing things that are making interesting stories. I think I would really love, I mean, I owe it to my community to leave a book behind, you know, maybe two or three books. You know, I always want to tell people how they should do and shouldn't do, like almost like you know, grooming tips or something. <laughs> you know, how to raise children or something. I don't know. But I mean, you know, you, those are things you think that you need to do because you owe it. Mm -hmm. You owe it to the community. You mm -hmm. owe it. And the community is vast. It's not just the black community. It's, it's the community, the world that you've stepped through. Uh, I, I, I do know that those are the things that you, that you have to do and I'm working on doing right now. Everything else, you know, I just want to lay comfortably in a hammock and have a tequila once in a while you know, take a little journey, you know, some kind of way, easy and swing in a hammock. That's the ambition. It's not ambitious, you see. I'd never been that ambitious, but I, I know it doesn't sound like it because of all the things I've done, but that starts from, I think, like I said, you come on earth to do these busy things, but getting the documentary done maybe and getting the book also, not maybe, getting a, a book finished would be righteous, you know, would be righteous. Can you and give that, us, oh, sorry. Uh -huh. Yeah, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to ask, can you give us some of these grooming tips? Like, what are some of these? Give us, give us these, give us three, three life lessons, like three little nuggets that we can walk away with and be like, you know what <laughs> Beth Ann said? <laughs> well, one thing for sure, when you're having problems with your boyfriend, don't always talk to your girlfriend about it for advice not your girlfriend <laughs> but she probably has the same problems with her you don't get a lot of good advice there you don't get commonality the other thing is i think when it comes down to children 
always remember you can start telling your children what you believe they should do and be from the time they can hear. So you can start talking to them from the time they're laying in a cradle and all the way through when you think they're not listening, they are. As long as you're talking to them, just tell them what you think. Just keep talking, they hear you. So one day, and please don't want them to be your friend. Don't care about them being your friend. Don't feel like you're gonna lose a friend. Be sure to be their guardian and their guide because it's so important. You want them to thank you when they get up on that stage and win an award. Those who get that is the people who have guided them and sort of like told them what they can and can't do and strictly demanded that of, of them. So that if you get lucky that you're your, your, your child's friend and you all get on and it works out well, good on you. But obviously that shit don't work. What's the third thing I can tell you? Let me think. Yeah. You know, you don't always have to stay with a person that's of your age in order to be in love with them. Mm. It could be someone who's far younger that you could just enjoy. There's so many women out there who claim all the time, I just can't find nobody. And then when someone comes along who likes them, that might be 10 or 15 years younger than them, they say, oh, I can't go out with him, he's too young. And I always say, but why? I mean, you're not looking to get married, right? You're just looking to enjoy a life. You know, because the youth can bring you so much more sometimes than your own set, your own time on earth. You, you know, be just for 15 months. But it'd be better to enjoy someone for 15 months than to be lonely wondering why can't you meet somebody. That's three, right? That's three. That's also a beautiful segue because <laughs> talk to me about Harry Styles. You have this cr oh my God. crush on Harry no, sorry. <laughs> you see, I get excited. What's your, why do why you say that? I know you have a little thing for Harry Styles. Oh, I love Harry. No, this is truth be told. I I love Harry Styles. <laughs> but Harry knows I and Harry loves me. I mean, we love each other. We're good people. No, he's a very wise, you know, he's an old soul, Harry. Harry's very special. I don't know why, you know, it comes up like that sometimes, you know, people you... You just know from a distance and then you get a chance to meet them and then you connect. Mm -hmm. And it's just, there's some, there's some tribal stuff. There's something, I know it sounds weird, but you don't have to be of the same culture, race or ethics, ethics maybe, yes, to be able to be connected to someone. So I just think that we just, I don't know, we just try to stay in touch and I really adore him. I think he's, no, true. I wouldn't be, a, look, Look, I had Paul from the Beatles. Yes, when I was, I don't know, teenager, I was crazy for him. But that's crazy, like screaming for the Beatles. But then when you meet someone that you just appreciate, I heard him sing, Carrie, when he went out with his first album on his own, I was lucky to hear this boy sing. I thought to myself, my God, and his fool, you know, I could tell he was tall. And the way he dressed and the way he sang the song and that he went into an alto, I was really impressed. I said, wow. I went right out and got the album. I don't do that. I don't know why, but I like singers. 
anything, honestly. <laughs> I don't, I'm not gonna go watch you in a concert because if you're not dancing, I ain't got time, right? Mm. But sometimes I go, like Sade, you know, if Sade comes back, you know, we all go see Sade. Mm-hmm. I mean, she ain't doing much for swinging her hips, but we go. <laughs> but, I, but I did really, I, I, I don't know. And then when he was going to be one of the hosts of the Met Ball, and they called me to say they, they, they were inviting me to the Met Ball, and I didn't want to go. And I said, no, 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 I was in, I was in Morocco, and I, and I was being told, no, no. I said, well, no, you've got to get Anna's approval, because I thought that would stop them. But they had Anna's approval already. I was like, oh man, I gotta go to this thing. But when I found that Harry was one of the hosts, I said, okay, <laughs> I'll go. Cause I knew I was gonna get there. I was gonna see Harry, yeah. And I did. And that was our connection. That began, that began our little journey. Mm, I love that, I love that. Yeah, he's a great kid. He's, he's Everybody who knows him says nothing but great things about him. Cause he's really, He's well raised. I mean, you know, and to be in a boys band for 10 years and, you know, from the age of 16 to 20, you know, even well, less they broke up, they separated earlier. But to be, to spend that time and to come out of it and still be such a, you know, sensitive and well mannered, well groomed human being is very unique to see. Mm. Well, Beth Ann, I want to respect your time. Uh, first of all, just thank you again so much uh, for taking this time. Um, and I just want to acknowledge you for your tireless, like your tireless presence um, and love and joy and joie de vivre that you spread to every single person that you encounter. Um, you know, thank you for, you know, giving us Kadeem. Like, thank you for giving me a childhood. Thank you for produce, you know, being a vessel for, for a, a man that showed an entire generation of black youth, what it looked like to be in college. Right. I mean, college. that's, that was huge of different world. That, that, that was, was a major, that's huge. That no, was that's huge. huge. I mean, you know, everybody can be mad at Bill Cosby the rest of their lives, but I'm never going to forget what he did for the black culture of youth because he really saw that vision. He knew making Lisa go up and do that show. And even when, you know, that broke that relationship because she was one, you know, she was in love with Lenny and, you know, marriage and all, baby. Bill stayed the course. He knew what he had, you know, he knew what, 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 how the value and lucky that he had a production company that, you know, he was so successful, they supported it. The network supported it. And I'm telling you what it did for the black community and, Students, we hear it all the time. It made everyone think that being a nerd, you could be a b-boy, be a nerd, and still go to college. That was major. And everybody wanted to have that experience. I do agree with that. You know, I, I saw it. I watched it. I heard it. You know, you hear it all the time. And people, and that, that you can still see it, that people are still showing that they're showing that the people who were, it was influenced are now showing their children the show. It's still, it's timely. Yeah. And I think about even brands like Cross Colors like that, you know, also were a part of, I mean, this is, this is all really interconnected. And so, you know, and and even listening to you today, I realized that, you know, so much of, so much of your trajectory has been about allowing, has just been about, you know, releasing, releasing your grip on life and letting life wash over you and we all I mean you know 
creatives, the fashion industry, brands, you know, you're working with Gucci, we're working together at Estee Lauder, um, the connections that you've made, the, the people that you've met, like everyone, everyone has been better for having known you. Oh, wonderful. And that is, include, you know, present company included. And so I just want to thank you for that and acknowledge you for that. And I know that it, you know, isn't always easy and that there aren't, that it doesn't always, it's not always on the inside what it looks like on the outside. Um, and I know that this is a, a journey uh, uh, as well. And so I just want to thank you and acknowledge you uh, for that as well. So, and thank you for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. You know, thank you so much for this too. It's, it's great to be able to sit quietly and it, and glad that you have it set up in a way that you do it, you know, that you get the opportunity to, to do the video audio. Because <laughs> it is much easier to, you know, it's like you're sitting with having tea with a friend, you know, and you're just sitting and charting, but you really are good at this. So I hate to let the audience know how I feel also, but you're really good at you know, really thinking it out and, you know, having good questions and all. So you took me on a journey for my own life. Ah, and, and thank you for sharing your life with us. I have like one last, well, actually two last questions. First, yeah. how can people connect with you? Um, you have, you mentioned there's a documentary, like how can we follow you? Where should we go? Instagram handle, like what's, what's, what should we know? So it's Beth Ann Hardison. What do you say? What's next? At, what, is it, is it at, yeah, I think it's just at Beth Ann Hardison at Instagram. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Instagram, right. Yeah, CCC. And then you yeah, have yeah. a documentary coming out. And then and then there's a, on, underneath that is a, um, a website. So you can also write to me on the website there. It's on, on the on the Instagram. And the documentary, yeah, we're in, we're in development right now, Lord knows. And we're part of a, a program at Sundance. So that's helpful because they're helping us or want us to you know, be able to have an opportunity to uh, meet with their selected investors as well. So that's a very nice opportunity, but it requires a lot of work for those who are smarter than I. <laughs> I couldn't do it by myself, that's for sure, because it really requires experience. But all of us really feel like it's a first time out because it is a first time out doing this kind of thing. Um, so that's good. And uh, the book, I have a great agent who just really is patient. <laughs> and that's all I can say. I'm, tr I, you know, I've been writing a book for 30 years, but now this is the most time I've actually got right there. I'm, I feel like I'm on. I'm, I'm on it. It's, 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 it's coming. Yeah. And what was your, what was the second question? Yeah. What's the world that you imagine for the future? Wow. No pandemic. Well, start. There's a lot of problems out there, man. I don't know. All we can do is, you know, it's a terrible thing to say all we can do is meditate on it and pray. That's all. I think we really need to do our part. But there's so many people with so many differences and I don't know, so much illness and people want to hurt other people because how they don't feel good. That's so scary. I believe in guns, but this is crazy. You know, well, you know, gangster, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Annie Oakley, cowgirl. Yeah. Um, but I, this is really not, this is not good. This is so bad. We don't know how can you fix all of this. But so many people feel the Lord's on their side and other people see the danger of having it amongst people who have no right to it. So much happening in the, you know, 
African countries in the Middle East that just break my heart. Actually, can I, can I worry about the Palestinians and all, you know, I worry about so much. Yeah, I was actually wondering, can I slide one more question in there? Because you've mentioned the, the you even even kind of jokingly or sarcastically mentioned the Lord, but like, what is your spiritual practice? Oh, um, spiritual practice is believing that there are spirits. That's, that's where you start, that there are things and energies out there that help guide you. And I believe in what you can't tangibly touch. I believe in what you can't see. That's for sure. Practice. I should meditate more times than I don't. I, I and then more times than I do. And uh, my my practice really basically is compassion. And I think that's my spiritual truth. It's compassion. I try to understand others, and I really am here to educate. I'm not here to be mad at anybody. I'm here to see what what, what what's really on your mind. But my religion still remains to be Islam. Only because my father told me, once a Muslim, always a Muslim. Even though I still have a tequila once in a while, and I may not be the best, best, best Muslim, I still do Ramadan every year. The holy month of Ramadan, I definitely do every year. Sometimes, since I left my dad, I stopped at 18, but then when I, back in eight, I started to do it again in 88, and I've never stopped. So Ramadan is coming. Soon, April 13th, 14th, 12th. So there I'll be for a month. Dry as an oasis. <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel that way. You know, I do wish sometimes I could get find an imam that I wish it was like my dad, but I, there are good imams out there. And I do sometimes want to really literally go back into really more practice learning my, you know, I learned, I forgot my prayers, my salat. I, you know, I don't remember all my Arabic, you know. So I don't know all the prayers anymore, but I would like to, I say that, I would like to find an imam to start to work with and to talk. I do say that, I haven't done it because I'm so busy doing for the universe, but I do know I am Muslim. So my practice is basically the spirit that surrounds us. That is amazing. I had no idea. So thank, no idea. You, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, well, on that note, Bethann, have a beautiful afternoon. Um, feel better. I know that you're a bit under the weather. Um, but again, appreciate this time and this energy that you shared with us. Um, and the energy you gave me. Uh, feel better. An absolute pleasure. Have a beautiful, thank beautiful so afternoon. Much. I love you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dario. Pleasure. <laughs> Thank you again for asking me. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Beth Ann is and has been such a monumental figure in the world of fashion and culture writ large. Gems drop from her mouth like like diamonds from the purse of a generous jeweler. I don't know. Did that work? Um, let us know what resonated with you over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to explore this and more incredible content via IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. The visual podcast player is something to behold, if I do say so myself. What Beth Ann reminds us is that no one is coming to save you. The hero you've been looking for is staring right back at you in the mirror. Stay curious and keep dreaming.